Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. Merry Christmas. And it's about Jesus Christ. It's not about the big corporations and the chi atheist and the globalist. Because in China, if you say Merry Christmas, you get shipped off to a concentration camp. Well, that's all you do. You say, Merry Christmas. We're taught to believe that if we submit to the left and use the words they tell us to use and follow their nomenclature, their system, that they'll leave us alone and we'll be part of the club. The truth is, you're giving in to cult members that know that they're bullying and dominating and taking control of you. And that's why they've allied with Islam is because they see it as an authoritarian system as well that's orthodox and will force you under their control. That's why giving into the bullying will never empower you. It starts out with don't use the N-word. Well, I don't use that, so okay. And then next it's, oh, don't say Merry Christmas, say Happy Holidays. And now here we are today. Don't say mother and father. Some people don't have mother and father. a very special Christmas Yuletide episode of Ending the Myth. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And today we're bringing a little treat for your stocking. Munya, what do you know about the war on Christmas? <laughs> well, I do know that it's been a culture war for the past few years where people will uh, go to starbucks and say that their name is merry christmas uh because apparently starbucks is trying to take away the uh christmas in favor of uh of radical <laughs> islam or something yeah it's the one month of the year that your weird uncle goes to starbucks and doesn't write attack helicopter on yeah. his <laughs> you know, cop or whatever <laughs> demand that they write a uh, machine gun on his cop um <laughs> Well, Munio, one thing you might know or not know, because it happened just yesterday, but Donald Trump did declare victory in the war on Christmas. Uh, and I just I just want to play this clip for you. OK, it's, it's, yeah, let, it's too good. Let me, let me hear this. America had gone through a long period where people quit saying Merry Christmas. It was all happy holidays. You deliberately changed that That's and true. openly said Merry Christmas. We're going to say it again. In fact, was it was part of my campaign. My campaign. Yeah. The country had started with this woke, I guess, uh, a little bit before that. Yeah. And it was embarrassing for stores to say Merry Christmas. You'd see these big chains. They want your money, but they don't want to say Merry Christmas. And they'd use reds and they'd use whites and snow, but they wouldn't say Christmas. And when I started campaigning, this was in 2015, when I started campaigning, I said, you're going to say Merry Christmas again. And now people are saying it. Of course, they're not saying a lot of other things like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. You know, those names are being obliterated because of craziness. But uh, they are saying Merry Christmas again. We got that. That was a big part of what I was doing. And so I would say it all the time during that period that we want them to say Merry Christmas. Don't shop at stores that don't say Merry Christmas. And I'll tell you, we brought it back very quickly. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. There are some times I kind of miss the guy. <laughs> oh man, he needs to come back on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think he should. I don't say he should be president, but yeah. I, he should be back on Twitter at least. Like nobody's being heard on Twitter. Twitter's only for no. freaks, anyways. It is pretty funny that he's now releasing just like press releases as tweets, and they and they kind of hit. They kind of slap low key. Yeah. Well, he he has the energy like in this interview. And this is anytime anybody asks him a question. He has the energy of a like kid who forgot he was supposed to give a presentation that day. But is yes. like is like just fuck it. I'll just bullshit it in front of the class. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I so I felt like ha Donald Trump having won the war on Christmas. Uh, a lot of times during a war, we got to like circle the wagons. Uh, we have to, you know, 
rush to the aid of, you know, home and hearth in nation, right? But once the war's over, we can look back a little bit. And wouldn't you know it, the war on Christmas takes us right back to our favorite era, the progressive era. What? That far? <laughs> All the way back. All the oh way back, God. baby. So I'm going to read you a newspaper article from March of 1921. This is, uh, it's a listicle proving once okay, again, great. <laughs> once again, that uh, listicles cannot be defeated. They've lasted forever. This was in Henry Ford's Dearborn Independent as part of his regular column on the International Jew. And this was... Uh, the 10 plans of oh, what he, he effectively refers, you know, is talking about is the Jewish Taliban. Essentially. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, number six, elimination of Christmas celebration in public schools and public places, police stations and so on. Public displays of Christmas trees, singing of Christmas carols and Christian hymns. He then goes on to talk about how last Christmas, most people had a hard time finding Christmas cards that indicated in any way that Christmas commemorated someone's birth. <laughs> now, one, uh, you know, look, Henry's right. Uh, we never see Christmas celebrations in public anymore. Never. <laughs> never. No. Right? But it is funny, you know. So over the course of 1920 to 1921, in his paper, he published a series of columns, which eventually became a book, which was called The International Jew, right? Which is essentially the American version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Mm. And which, are you familiar with the Protocols, I guess? No, no, I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, let's go back a little further. Then. Yeah, okay, let's do it. So in 1903... The Tsar's political police, which were called the Okrana, and are like the equivalent of the FBI, essentially. Okay, yeah. Right? Uh, and like the FBI, spend almost all their time uh, just like forging fake bullshit and putting it in the public and assassinating political leaders. <laughs> but, okay, so, you know, so far pretty familiar. Yeah, in the spirit of that, in 1903, they uh, created this pamphlet called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which purported to be the secret minutes of a meeting of an international jewish cabal bent on taking over the world via you know international finance and like build you know building a one world government blah 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 right now mm -hmm. you know all the details of this because this is like the er racist conspiracy theory yeah like, they yeah. all come back to this now they of course you know released this anonymously claiming it to be real uh, it was in response to groups like the Bolsheviks in Russia who were organizing against the Tsar and things like that, an attempt to paint these political organizations as some sort of foreign power, right, coming right, in right. and, you know, uh, misleading people. It's amazing how that's a universal theme. <laughs> <laughs> all these of course with the bolshevik revolution russian immigrants took the protocols all over the world uh including to our beloved united states and uh spread them like christmas cheer <laughs> and the uh, this is where the concept of judeo-bolshevism comes from uh which will be the dominant concept in america for understanding uh you know, uh, communism or the Soviet Union in the pre, you know, 1945 period, right? Is that it's some sort of Jewish conspiracy. Now, what's interesting about Ford's thing is that he has all the like little tidbits that you'd expect to be there are already like almost fully fleshed out in 1921. So, you know, right here, uh, this is from November of 1921. The time of year has come when Christians implore the tolerance of Jews while Christmas is being celebrated. If the Jews will only permit Christians to celebrate Christmas in their schools, their homes, their churches, and their inner city squares <laughs> and country villages. We are asking whether we dare, as Christians in a Christian land, whisper the name that gives Christmas meaning. Christian teachers want to know if they will be discharged if they give their classrooms a bit of Christmas flair, as all our teaching gave us when we were young. <laughs> and so we get like all the bits are already here, right? You're no longer allowed to celebrate Christmas. Christmas has been canceled, everybody. Yep. Yeah. Um, the woke mob came after it. The woke mob. We can't mob. say Merry Christmas anymore. Yeah, we can't do Christmas carols anymore because the Jews say it's offensive. 
Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Right. The, the PC police. Yeah. Coming after us, right? <laughs> and I just love the the Christian teachers, they just want to know, can they celebrate Christmas this year? <laughs> this the year of our Lord, 1921. Can we celebrate Christmas? <laughs> and uh you know, I, I don't know, you know, you went to school, obviously, in progressive Seattle. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in Texas, we, we celebrated Christmas every year, like every kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Well, this is kind of funny. And occasionally you'll get sort of like the occasional lib will figure out that this is like where the origin of the war on Christmas comes from. I think they kind of miss the point of what this is all about. And so let me just read you some of the titles of the articles that were released before and after the ones that I just read to you. There's this Jim, uh, the all Jewish mark on quote red Russia, or followed quickly by Jewish testimony in favor of Bolshevism. Huh. Then it's followed by Jewish idea molded Federal Reserve plan, which was part of a series, which was followed by Jewish idea of Central Bank for America, and how Jewish international finance functions. <laughs> wow. Then uh, they had another series in there, which was began with the Jewish control of the American theater, Jewish supremacy in motion picture world, when editors were independent of the Jews. Jewish jazz becomes our national music. It becomes our national music. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well. Yeah, move over, John Coltrane. My <laughs> God. And Well, you know, uh, Munya, it's interesting you bring that up because there's going to be a theme in here. Uh, which I didn't delve super deep into, but there's a theme of almost all black culture or certainly black demands for rights are uh-huh. actually secret Jewish plots. Uh, yeah, right. Because there's no way that those, um, you know, one track mind dumbass um, subhumans can ever, you know, have like coherent, uh, you know, beliefs um, outside of, you know, some outside cabal of influence, which would be the Jews. It seems like that's like a way to basically resolve this like, you know, like racist worldview of how how on earth can, you know, these people who are not human, like behave in a uh, in a human way? Well, it must it must be this other this other force, like with the, uh, you know, puppet master, uh, you know, hanging down on them. It can't be them doing it. Yeah. Of course. I mean, well, one, uh, we know that these are, you know, the black people in America are a simple people who just love hanging down on the plantation. Look, yep. we all saw Gone with the Wind. We we yeah. know the, the yeah. preferred lifestyle. They liked it. They, they liked, liked it. it if only, if only the perfidious <laughs> Jew had not entered into the equation, right? Yeah. I mean, it is this sort of fascinating thing. I mean, one, that again just like all the elements of the war on Christmas are already there, all the elements of sort of right-wing reactionary thought are already here, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The idea of the Federal Reserve as some sort of secret conspiracy against me. Um, you know, I mean, it is, but not in the way they're thinking. <laughs> the, the that's idea, the most frustrating the part about these. It's like, yeah. you know, <laughs> like you're identifying something that is like kind of like vaguely there but like your conclusion on why it's there is just so like off the wall like yeah. it's it's embarrassing because it's like it's obvious like what the actual conspiracy of the federal reserve is like you know <laughs> we all know what it is it certainly doesn't have to do with just you know religion <laughs> yeah and i mean you know as we've discussed on the show i mean fairly well written about and things like that uh you know again i mean similarly right like i i think people understand like there's something weird about american culture and then it's just funny that they come down to it must be that like you know hollywood is controlled by the jews or newspapers yeah. are controlled by the jews. all of which is yeah. right here the music industry is you know controlled <laughs> by the jews or whatever and it's again this fascinating thing i mean one it implies that yeah uh <laughs> you know that i guess like there was no black influence on jazz <laughs> that again <laughs> that was just that was just puppets uh but yeah. also um American filmmakers like uh, D.W. Griffith or whatever, who are the most popular filmmakers of the time, uh, probably decidedly anti-Semitic <laughs> in their beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, it, it's just a very weird um, lens to put on things uh, if you like were to scratch on it in any way, right? But I think when you look at kind of how the Dearborn Independent was used, 
it explains a little bit of this. Like, this is not meant to necessarily be the most coherent worldview. Uh, the Dearborn Independent was given to you as a condition of your employment at Ford, right? So, oh, oh, great. <laughs> that, that, uh, th- no, no anti Semitism probably at the Ford company, yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. So, if you're a worker at Ford, you're basically just given the Dearborn Independent every day, right? Also, if you owe, if you wanted to sell Fords, right? So if you were, you know, had a Ford dealership, you had to agree to distribute it, right? So hilariously, <laughs> the so they actually like franchised off like these newspapers. Like if you're like just like a Ford dealer, like in Tequila, you'd have to like yep. have the Dearborn newspaper. Yep. Yep. Part of your license agreement is that you have to carry this paper. And so hilariously, at one point, this paper has like a distribution of, I think, 900,000 copies, which is particularly for 1920, an astonishingly huge. That's insane. Run. It makes it easily one of the biggest papers in the country, you know, probably top five biggest paper in the country. Right now, the thing is, is that basically in the paper, right, he's turning Jews, obviously, into a boogeyman that's designed to kind of like gain compliance right from his work voice you know in the editorials you know workers who are trying to union organize or seek a better life through any sort of labor organizing you know or forget it dream of any alternative to capitalism well much like the black jazz musician they are just simple dupes of the diabolical jews (laughs) right (laughs) who are who are out to destroy their perfect world by you know convincing them to rise against their wonderful bosses it is essentially trying to latch capitalists really understand that there's something inherently unappealing about them yeah yeah so they're always trying to kind of sneak things through on the back of something else right and so the idea is like this anti-communist bullshit that I'm spreading, I'll just attach it to like Protestant Christianity and then see if that will like be the sugar on the pill that will cause the workers to, you know, take it down essentially. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's interesting. I mean, Ford, who doesn't appear to be particularly religious himself, would constantly warn his workers that Jews are trying to secularize the public schools that their kids go to. Uh, they're doing this to prepare the soil for the teaching of Jewish revolutionary ideas by red professors at the college level. We even have the, uh, we got to get the the communists out of college. The, line. Out of, I, yeah, out of colleges. Yeah. Out which of I, higher education. Still yet to meet one. Um, you know, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> the ever elusive guys. The funniest thing about that uh, Zizek interview with, or not interview, but debate with, um, oh, oh, with Jordan Peterson. Peterson was yeah. when he asked him to name one of these diabolical uh, postmodernists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, couldn't even come up with a single name. I mean, it was, it was just hilarious. Couldn't even come up with a scapegoat. They only usually yeah. have, like, one. But, the, yeah, yeah, it, it was just nothing. like, no, yeah. Yeah, and Zizek correctly is like, well, you're saying this is, like, the dominant trend in every college. Yeah. And you, not even, like, a guy in your department? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I forget, like, big names in the field. Like, you don't have just, like, a guy you don't like at your college, you know? Yeah. Yeah, hilariously, that already existed. Now, to give people an idea of what colleges were like in 1920, uh, in the 1919 Seattle general strike, the frat students, the fraternity students at the University of Washington were deputized, definitely in the biggest quotations ever, to uh, beat up and shoot strikers, right? This is pretty common in a lot of cities. To give you an idea of the- So the the frat boys just, like, turned into, like, proud boys? Basically, yeah. Yeah. And this is actually, like, common in- um, in U.S. labor history, to give you an idea of like the political temperament on colleges, extremely reactionary, which makes sense. I mean, this is all rich kids. Yeah, I mean, even come University on. Of Washington. I mean, it, well, that that actually makes a lot more sense. I don't want to really get like too off topic, but it, you know, in like fraternities, like a lot of the things which I've just kind of like observed is like you know, for their own. I think they have like specific chairs and so some of them like are in charge of like managing risk basically right mm-hmm. like and these are all like college kids but one of the objectives is to like basically develop a rapport with the police which yeah, is yeah. like essentially like you know like knowing their name having this like kind of agreement where they won't like you know bust them for any party right like they <laughs> like stand with the blue in a lot of ways right and not necessarily in like a pure like you know political ideological sense even though a lot of them are you know, probably skew that way anyway, but like, in just like, 
yeah, like we need to just develop a really good relationship with the police. And like, we know their names. We kind of have this in with them. And it's like, it's funny that there's actual history of fraternities, like participating, like basically being an arm of the state in a way uh, for, for police as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think what you're seeing is essentially class alliances, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, I remember going to, it was actually a talk given by Dinesh D'Souza at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And, you know, a bunch of us, like, went to this talk and we're just, like, yelling shit at him. Yeah, right, like, right. And it was so funny. The campus conservative group that put him on, uh, which I believe was called Movement for the Future, uh, which was putting the event on, the... I mean, these little shitty, pimply fucking campus conservatives were ordering the police around. It was hilarious. They would like point to people and say, you get rid of him. And the cops would like jump up, yeah. like run over. Because <laughs> I remember they, they were at one point yelling at me. And I was just like, you're going to let those guys tell you what to do? And yeah. I was like, yeah. you get out of here, you know, or whatever. Like, and it was hilarious. I mean, you know, just pathetic, pathetic all around. But uh, yeah, I think they all understand inherently their relationship in this sort of system, right? Right, and, right. And for Ford, right, you know, his publication of these things, I mean, he understands what's happening here too, right? He understands this is very self-serving. What he's doing is essentially saying, if you are trying to organize in my factory, that you are part of a shadowy foreign Jewish conspiracy, which gives yeah. me the right to do whatever I want to you to stop you, right? Which Ford had secret police that would go through his factories. They would just beat fucking people half to death on the middle of the assembly line and stuff if they thought you were like a union organizer as a as a show of force to everybody else around. Um, you know, and to give you an idea of how he, he you know, how he would utilize this at his uh, Rouge River plant in 1939 workers were threatening to unionize and so he had signs posted everywhere in the plant saying jews teach communism jews teach atheism jews destroy christianity jews control the press jews produce filthy movies and jews control money and that was his like leading edge of his anti-organizing attack at the plant uh let me just say that date again 1939 interesting date huh, anyways okay. mm. yeah yeah henry ford also hilariously got a medal from hitler so I, I, yeah yeah i, I, I was like about to say better not, better not google henry ford nazi i'm sure yeah. there'll be zero results that show up there it hilariously in one of his biographies uh they mention an event i mean he's essentially dying through the the war right i mean he's like bedridden through most of the war he's old as shit and uh, at one point, they're trying to, like, recover his image a little bit because the Nazi thing is looking a little bad. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. They, uh, so they bring in a friendly reporter to, like, interview him while he's, like, bedridden. And the reporter's just tossing softballs at him. And then one of the softballs is he just asks, you know, hey, do you think Ford would ever, you know, think about going public? Uh, to which Henry responded uh, something that looked basically... Uh, I would destroy this, you know, I destroy my factories brick by brick before I turn them over to Jewish speculators. And then the reporter was promptly picked up and shoved out of the room by wow. Henry's people. <laughs> yeah. So held it, held all these beliefs to the very end. But uh, during the thirties, I mean, so a couple of things are happening here. One, right. Which we talked about in our last episode, which is, this connection of labor movements, right, with the idea of a foreign threat, right? Right, yeah. And the idea that the reason that you do this is because it gives you permission to do whatever you want to the labor movements in reaction, right? Because mm -hmm. this, this is no longer concerned workers. This is a fifth column, right? Invaders, you know? Right, right. You can do what these please. The other thing is his, his fusion of anti-semitism american protestantism and anti-communism which is going to become a theme <laughs> all right so like i said this is the dominant belief of american conservatives in the pre-world war ii period is that communism is a jewish conspiracy to take over the world then something happens between 1939 and 1945 we don't have to get into it that somehow <laughs> makes openly expressing this belief uh, not palatable anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. so they get to feeling a little weird about it. They don't necessarily want to say it out loud anymore or anything like that. 
But coming out of the Second World War, there is the Cold War. And this is where some more interesting things happen. Like, say, the creation of the Christian Freedom Foundation. Right? So, founded in 1950, this was a merging of the American evangelical movement and the Cold War. You know, as Billy Graham warned, communism is masterminded by Satan himself. And that communists sought to strike at the very heart of Christian and American values, the home. So again, quoting Graham, one of the goals of American communism is is to destroy the American home. If the communists can destroy the American home and cause moral deterioration in this country, that group will have done to us what they did to France when the German armies invaded the Maginot Line. Now, We'll forget how confused the latter part of that statement is. Yeah, I'm like still trying to process that last part. I... Okay. But basically, this whole thing makes a little more sense if I give you a little more detail. Okay. So while publicly, this was a group of concerned Christian pastors just trying to make sure their you know, flock isn't led astray, covertly, the organization was funded entirely by Sun Oil. Oh, okay. Weird. Okay. They were commissioned to lead seminars for business groups, and they published the book Christian Economics, which they distributed to over 175,000 Protestant ministers. Dude, I need to read this. Christian Economics. (laughs) Well, to give you an idea, uh, historian Elizabeth Fotis Wolf, who did the reading for you, uh, summarized it as, it called for the church to speak up for capitalism and kept a steady drumbeat of warnings that the survival of religion depended upon the survival of capitalism. So- <laughs> <laughs> We're going to good places here. Yeah, this is this is going to a great place. Holy cow. Okay. So Sun Oil uh, also funded other evangelical groups like the Council of Christian Laymen and Spiritual Mobilization. All these groups are totally inbred. They all have the same members. Uh, they're all front groups, basically. Uh, they mainly mass-produced red-baiting pamphlets like How Red is the Federal Council of Churches, which sought to expose communists amongst clergy who supported the New Deal. Right? <laughs> basically, what's happening is a, a merging is happening between Cold War uh, American capitalism and the Protestant church in America, right? Now, enter yeah. in another character, Right. In 1958, candy magnate Robert Welch decided that he was done making sugar daddies, which he had made his fortune (laughs) off of, and was ready to join the war against international communism. He got together about a dozen other millionaires that he knew at a hotel uh, ballroom and just started spitting bars at them. What came out of this was called the Blue Book of the John Birch Society. Oh, boy. Okay. And... If you ever want to read some really just unhinged shit, uh, it's literally just a transcription of the insane ramblings he would go on while like mainlining coffee and uh, let's just say cocaine. (laughs) But it had uh, this major thesis, which was that right under our noses, the communists are gradually carrying out their plan of grand strategy, which is uh, so to change the economic and political structure of the United States that it can be comfortably merged with Soviet Russia in a one-world socialist government. (laughs) After all, communism is, in its unmistakable present reality, wholly a conspiracy, a gigantic conspiracy to enslave mankind. And then some themes are going to pop up that we might start to recognize. He rails against degenerate media, like the novel and movie Peyton Place that had come out just that year. Peyton Place, the town everyone's talking about. All the people of Peyton Place, with all their joys and sorrows, passions and compassions, are on the screen at last. I'm going to tell you a hard truth about yourself. It isn't sex you're afraid of. You can say yes or no to that. It's love. That's what you can't handle. There's a place I know that I'd like to show you that no one knows about. Not even you. It's my secret place. Uh, I knew every spot within three miles of Peyton Place. I never knew this place was here. I don't think anybody does but me. Maybe God. Now you. 
He talks about red college professors who are, quote, quietly causing professors who oppose the communist line to be eased out of jobs wherever they can, making it hard for conservatives to get jobs on campus. Not oh, I hate cons- that. Hate it when that happens. Yeah, when I was at Texas Tech, that's what I was always thinking about is why aren't there more conservative Why aren't there conservative us? professors? <laughs> well, <laughs> they just don't have a voice in higher education. Well, it's funny. He, you know, his case study in this is this guy named Medford Evans, which I feel like from his name, you, you could probably already guess where this is going. But he, he taught at a small college in, in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And his faculty did push for the college to get rid of him. Now, that could be because he was a brave conservative, or it could be because he was essentially like an active member of the Ku Klux Klan who oh, was yeah. essentially uh, advocating violence <laughs> against the uh-huh. black population of Louisiana. He uh, became famous for his book, Civil Rights Myths and Communist Realities. Oh, boy. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to get probably not doesn't take a whole lot of sleuthing to figure out where that book's going what the no, thesis of that no, no. was yeah but you know no it's just a, it's just them trying to silence him for just being a conservative yeah, exactly. like, <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know you could say that it's telling what they think just being a conservative means but uh mm-hmm. but yeah i mean imagine how what a fucking prick you would have to be to have your like coworkers try and get rid of you at a Louisiana college in like 1960. You know? I mean, like th- there but. had to be so much more like tolerated, right? Like oh, yeah. outside like, of this person, like for yeah, t- to be in in the in the 60s in Louisiana for them to be like, all right, this guy, this guy, even go. for like <laughs> the general context of what we're dealing with here, is like abnormal basically <laughs> a whole room of guys who sound like fog hag who you know fog at leghorn or whatever and are like yeah, yeah. pulling on their suspenders and basically <laughs> like this guy's gone too far yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah uh incredible um so yeah you know and civil rights by the way is something that uh welch talks about in the blue book as well uh my favorite is that he always puts civil rights in quotations Oh, okay. And, uh, Great. And, and he does say that. the whole slogan of civil rights uh, is used to make trouble in the South today is an exact parallel of the slogan of agrarian reform, which communists used in China. And, Interesting. I mean, I guess uh, in, in the most charitable sense, we could say uh, he's right in that both groups are identifying a major problem that should be resolved. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but i do like that uh it's like look you know it's just a slogan nobody nobody actually wants this right this is just yeah, the, yeah. this is the masters right well in 1959 the ground having been properly prepared the john birch society struck a blow against the war on christmas with their pamphlet there goes christmas with an exclamation point <laughs> A warning about the Reds' efforts to weaken the pillar of religion in our country by driving to take Christ out of Christmas to, to denude the event of its religious meaning. Basically, they argue all the same things that Henry Ford argued, which is that, uh, oh, they won't let us put up Christmas trees anymore. Oh, my, my teacher got uh, th- this teacher got fired because the school said, sorry, no Christians allowed. No Christians allowed. <laughs> <laughs> public school and this by the way totally secular holiday in america which is yeah christmas. yeah <laughs> the thing that changed and there goes christmas was you can no longer just say uh it's the jews doing it right mm-hmm. so now it just became well it's internationalists it's the united oh, nations okay, yeah and it's the communists and you can almost picture them being like, you know, was it the double quotations or whatever around communists? Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can almost see them placing it, right? Oh, you mean like the double the, the tri- parentheses? The, the triple parentheses. Triple parentheses around communists, right? You know? Um, so basically, Birch has just replaced conspiratorial Jewish bankers with international communists and just hoped kind of nativist sentiment would uh you know pick pick up the drift if you will uh which they did so 
The return of uh, a very anti-Semitic idea of, you know, anti-communism started to really come back in this time period. Now, another really important thing that happened is that the evangelical right and the John Birch Society basically became indistinguishable from one another at this point as well. Now, Mm. this is in large part because they shared a lot of membership. Now, the intellectual architect of the modern Christian right is a guy named uh, Rusas Reshaduni. He was a Birch member, along with the influential director of Summit Ministries, David Noble. Billy Graham's father-in-law, Dr. Nelson Bell, headed up the John Birch chapter in Chicago, while Graham himself contributed articles to the American Mercury, which was a Birch production uh, that produced conspiracy theories uh, from the Birch group, but left all the anti-Semitism in. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Very cool. So with this sort of mingling of the John Birch Society and the evangelical movement, both groups that, by the way, were covertly funded by corporate America and the CIA, you know, just put a pin in that, formed the popular base on which the right-wing reaction would begin in the 1970s and still sort of dominates the country today. Now, Evangelicals mustered popular support in the South by resisting racial integration, by calling it, you guessed it, a socialist conspiracy or communist conspiracy against the country uh, in public schools. Elsewhere, they promoted, you know, in quotes, family values in contraposition to the tangle of pathology that was the black family, according to the Moynihan Report, or the challenge to heterosexual dominance posed by women's and gay liberation. Now, here's a sort of funny side note. Billy Graham was very fond of describing Jesus as, quote, every inch a he-man. Indeed, Christ (laughs) was probably the strongest man physically that ever lived. Uh, I think he later went on to tweet that, and I bet if Jesus formed a football team, he could beat any team in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> he was, if he was, uh, you know, if uh, he was a boxer, he could probably take on Floyd Mayweather. Exactly. I mean, the real question is if uh, Jesus uh, formed a football team and the troops formed a football team, which one would yeah. win? Yeah. And I mean, that is the battle of titans. If you want to see mean, conservative brains pop. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way to go. Which is funny because the Army and Navy have football teams and they're not great. But yeah, anyway. yeah, it's the worst game of the year of yeah, college football. It's basically it's right up there with the uh like the Harvard Yale game or something. Yeah, you know? Exactly. <laughs> like shit that you wonder why they even televise it. <laughs> basically what they did is they created a new Protestant Christianity that was rooted more in whiteness and pro business attitudes and a sort of fantastical belief in a make-believe family unit that never really existed in america uh, that became the core of american christianity in this time now during the reagan years mega churches started to sprout up in america's suburbs their ministers began promoting the prosperity gospel which equated the accumulation of personal wealth with spiritual righteousness and poverty with sin uh, my favorite megachurch leader san antonio uh, pastor john hagee whose church stiffed me on so many fucking pizza deliveries. Fuck those guys. Fuck Uh, that. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Legendary fucking cheapskates. At the store, we would fucking spit and fucking throw all sorts of heinous shit (laughs) all over their fucking pizzas because they're so fucking cheap. (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit. The pizzas they got for free, by the way, because the guy that owned the Domino's in San Antonio was a fucking member of Hakey's church. Oh, of course. So Fuck. They get like 20 pizzas for free, like every Saturday. And uh, everybody would fight to not deliver it. And basically the entire time those pizzas were getting made, we we're just, dist- we we're wrecking them. Like, yeah. like Hakey's church has eaten so many of our pubes. It's fucking unbelievable. But anyways, moving on. <laughs> Fuck them. So John Hagee warned in a sermon, quote, America has rewarded laziness and we've called it welfare. Then he went on to admonish the poor to, quote, get their nasty self off the couch and go get a job. Yeah. Fuck you, John. Mm -hmm. My brother, uh, incidentally, my brother went to school with at least one of Hagee's sons. And uh, I just remember even as a kid, my brother would come home and complain about what a piece of shit he was. (laughs) (laughs) So new Christian libertarian think tanks were birthed like the Acton Institute, which began preaching that capitalism is a Christian creation, while others sought out pro-capitalist statements in the Bible, seeking a 
Christian origin for our yeah yeah famously famously a system that existed when Jesus was around (laughs) yeah yeah. two thousand years ago yep yeah Uh, historians love those comparisons let me tell you Uh, taking on a particularly Christian identity American capitalism capitalism was again ready for the war on Christmas. While working as a writer for Fortune magazine in the 1990s, Peter Brimelow began to resurrect the idea of the war on Christmas, arguing that it served to weaken America's white Christian ethnic core. Brimelow would later create the openly racist website VDare, which made the war oh, on Christmas. Oh, God. Not VDare. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Which made the war on Christmas an annual event with headlines like, quote, Yes, Virginia, there is a war on Christmas and on america now funny story a lot of this stuff i'm pulling from an article i wrote with friend of the show marianne henderson back in like 2015 about this and peter brimelow somehow got a hold of this article and wrote wrote a review of it on v dare where he basically says out of here yeah he basically says like everything in the article is correct he's like but he then cryptically says but to call us openly racist i mean you know yeah like, while you're publishing on a literal white supremacist website like openly <laughs> like even like like probably deeper than like stormfront and shit like well, it's, you it's, know it's funny because you could just say it's going too far to call us racist but it's very funny to keep the openly part because it yeah, does right, then basically right. leave room for the like look we're, we're keeping it on a low like, like come like, on guys it's essentially saying like you guys are you guys are accusing me of not doing my job by being more because like our job is to make it a little not that open you know like <laughs> or he's basically saying guys i could be a lot more racist let yeah. me tell you <laughs> it's, a, it's a threat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you think that's open wait until you see what i could do when the floodgates really open <laughs> i'm at a two right now i'm at a two gonna, yeah. I haven't even said it yet. I haven't even said it. <laughs> Just I don't even have a hood pass, and I'm about to say it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'd be there. They probably say it quite a lot. They do in the <laughs> they do in the comments, like the sure yeah. you of that. Um, yeah, but yeah. Well, the real revival of the war on Christmas, and why we all got to fucking hear about it every year, of course, was Fox News and. You know, Bill O'Reilly was the first one to figure out that you could get a lot of ratings juicing the story. Uh, in 2004, he basically resurrected it with this, you know, one of his sweet takes that he would do at the end of one, uh, every at the end of every O'Reilly factor, where he said, "Secular progressives realize that America as it is now will never approve of gay marriage, partial birth abortion, euthanasia, legalized drugs, income redistribution through taxation." Which one of those do you think he's more concerned about, by the way? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, (laughs) surely not like the last one, right? Yeah, Uh, because of religious opposition. But if secularists can destroy religion in the public arena, the brave new progressive world is a possibility. So just to keep track, we've gone from international Jews to Judeo-Bolsheviks to... (laughs) uh international communists to now uh we're just gonna call the we're just gonna say progressives because now we're on tv talking to the progressors yeah (laughs) uh that sort of has gotten us to where we are today i mean it's very funny because even though henry ford had this huge distribution for the dearborn independent and you know he basically was forcing his workforce to take copies of it Every member of his workforce fucking hated him and was clearly just throwing that shit in the trash. It's not yeah, entirely right. clear that amongst like regular people, like um, I think amongst guys who own dealerships and probably his management and stuff like that, this was a pretty influential paper. It's not clear that it was very influential in the working class in any real way. But what's interesting is all the elements of that remain in the Warren Christmas metaphor or like storyline today. And it has now gone mainstream via fox news right so like Uh again the story of progress the story of people being less uh stupid with every passing year uh we just keep blowing the story up right like because in the 1920s there was actually a big push against uh henry ford's anti-semitism like they he eventually was taken to court at one point oh for libel and like 1927 and forced to apologize now 
he famously told people that he didn't write the apology and that he had one of his coworkers forge his signature or whatever, but was forced by court order to apologize for being an anti-Semite. Uh, and people did like not like it. I mean, you know, they yeah, they like it, it was it wasn't it. just like tolerated. It was like people didn't like it was op- openly like detested. It seems. Yeah, I mean, he never had the reach at least to by say, some people. Yeah, and it never had the roots or the it never had the reach that say like a uh, a Fox News has or whatever, which is essentially just spreading the same message, right. which kind of gets us to the point of. You know, one, what is the war on Christmas all about? Right. You know, it's everybody treats it like this funny culture war issue. But what's its actual sort of point? Right. And it has. Uh Yeah. And it has these roots in anti-communism and racism. But the biggest thing, right, is like so many things we've talked about in the show. It proposes that any threat to the conservative status quo in America must be the product of some sort of outside agitator and jews are chosen because jews are always seen as the ultimate foreigner right you know they're never part of anything right you know they're always on the edge of whatever civilization waiting to be excluded and that's what makes them like a good vehicle for the story right you know because people there's just not a lot of sympathy in countries, you know, because yeah. anti-Semitism is fucking real, right? You know, it's a real thing that exists and that's what they're tapping into. But it also making them the center point of the story is again, trying to create a foreignness to domestic, you know, anger over how the economy is run, organized, etc. Essentially that's what gets attached to the labor movement. That's what gets attached to say communism and things mm-hmm. like that. And that's one part of what it's about. But the other thing is what is it about the protocols that sort of captures the American imagination? And I think that's the more interesting question. Like why, why are these dumb stories appealing? Cause we all know they're bullshit. Like, I mean, yeah, right. surely nobody actually believes that, uh, you know, Oh, I, my first graders teacher, uh, put up a Christmas tree. Now she's in jail. You yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> like, like these stories you know i think what captures the, the imagination of americans is that we all know there's something wrong in america right like we know that for a country this wealthy people shouldn't be living in the way that they are right you know you drive down the streets and you see enormous buildings you know that uh maybe the two richest men in human history live in your city yet your city counted forty thousand homeless people last year this is the case of Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're treated like shit at work every day, even though you're told that, you know, you're the king of your castle, that you're, uh, you know, through your consumer identity, that you have all these powers, that you've been liberated from all these things. You go into work every day and are still treated like absolute dog shit. You know, you make less money than you did the year before. Like, everybody sees there's something weird happening. They don't like it, Right. But they have no ability to explain what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They've been systematically deprived of any tools for understanding how we got here and what forces are creating the situation they're in. And again, we talked about this in the last episode, but without a countervailing force to give an explanation for that situation, people kind of grab any you know, anything that's available, right? Any ledge that they can grab onto. And that's where offering up this kind of horse shit, you know, these anti-Semitic fucking conspiracy theories, that's where offering them up has this power, right? Right, right. You know, you're offering an explanation for a thing that nobody wants to explain to you. You know, that that has the nice power too of like, ooh, I know something I shouldn't know, right? But like, essentially it's you're giving an explanation which nobody wants to give. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that that, that sounds about right. I, like this, this kind of goes into because, like you know, we're talking about you know like Vidar and Fox News and everything, and it you know it like seems like at the rise of these like mega churches, this idea seems to go in the way of identifying a foreigner or an other as the root of the problem, which then ultimately will 
lead into nativism as well Mm -hmm. and just like nativist currents um which is not necessarily unique to the u.s but is a product of the west in general specifically if you are you know in a country that has a more or less dominant religion a dominant national religion Mm -hmm. protestantism in the case of the u.s catholicism in the case of france i mean like i think that even this reminds me of France in a lot of ways because they're, I mean, in modern times, like now, you know, they're, you know, dealing with um, changes in migration. A lot of people who are of Muslim faith, um, of Islam, um, you know, are, you know, like migrating into Europe. The lines that you hear in France too are mostly about protecting French culture Um and like you don't really think of like you know, like France is definitely a you know colonial uh, empire, but when you think of like white supremacy, you usually think about the United States. But I mean, like uh, there's a case to be made that like France is a white supremacist state as well because you know the way that they use that idea of we need to protect French culture and our culture is going to be ruined and flattened and taken over by these Muslims who are coming in. Uh, you know, we have to, you know protect our heritage as Christians and as Catholics. Um, and therefore, you know, we mm-hmm. need to basically like marginalize and kick these, kick these people out. Um, and that, that, that's, that is like really a use and a justification for, for violence and dehumanizing like a, you know, good portion of a, you know, a group or population, right. Um, in the name of, religion but you know when you bring race into the picture uh that you know typically it is not other white people who are the main target it is usually Mm -hmm. you know someone from a uh perceived foreign uh effect who wants to take over what you have right but that idea of taking over what you have the reason why that has so much purchase like you said brian is that because i mean what else do they have other than these fucking cultural signifiers because like you're already getting fleeced from capitalism because like everything you're promised obviously isn't delivered because you're not the owner of capital. Um, so it must, it must be these schneveling Jews or these, um, or these, uh, plotting aggressive Muslims who are coming Mm -hmm. in. Cause the one thing that you can always have is your, is your culture that everyone, you know, no matter who, as long as you believe in Christianity or, you know, believe in Catholicism, you all have those shared values and now that's going to be taken from you too. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean like that, that to me, like it does remind me of like how, um, you know, organized religion specifically, like whether it's Protestantism or Catholicism based on the dominant religion in that said country is usually used for those means too. Um, and like that's like all it seems like that's all underneath the surface of this clown clown show culture war that we're being fed via Fox News. But you know, that what Fox News is really good at is reading and getting influenced by people who are on these white supremacist publications like V Dare, like mm-hmm. um like John Birch Society, um all of these things which are like really intellectual at least like sound intellectual they're fucking idiotic but like you know they have all of these different terms like fox news basically flattens and just says like oh the woke mob is coming after christmas and it's, but it's the same yeah. shit that's under underneath like um and they could like sell that to people who maybe wouldn't really understand what like people on these like uh you know esoteric white supremacist uh forms are talking about well the thing is is that by giving it one layer of whitewash right you get the people who are on the forums who like hear the dog whistle you're winking at them and they like it but you're also bringing in people who maybe are ignorant of these sort of cultural strands you know of the you know the conspiracy theories the anti-semitic conspiracy theories and things like that and you're you're sort of giving them an entryway into these theories, right? You know, you're uh-huh. you're seeding the ground so that these freaks from fucking V Dare or whatever can then come and harvest later, right? Oh, and it's, yeah. and it's interesting that you bring up Europe because in the nineties, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, one of the things that people remarked about a lot in Europe across the you know, across Western Europe and Eastern Europe was the sort of like 
rapid return of pretty open anti-Semitism, right? Uh, in the case of Poland, is either in the 90s, it's an election is either 91 or 92, but uh, one of the early elections, Lech Walesa literally openly is accusing his guy running against him of being a secret Jew. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's changed his wow. name to hide his real identity. I mean, this is like literally his campaign, you know? Uh in Germany, the return of things like the protocols and stuff, like all of a sudden popping up in stores and things again, right? Um, there was a Council of Europe meeting where uh, they were trying to address the issue of anti-Semitism, where one of the members stood up and basically said, like, you know, it's like we've opened a Pandora's box and, like, all the evil of the interwar years has come back, you know? I mean, like, there was a lot of commentary about this return of anti-Semitism, and I think you're right to degree that the war on terror that the United States, you know, fucking created, uh, essentially allowed them to substitute anti-Semitism, which might seem unpalatable to some people in Europe still. And they just substitute it with Muslims. Right. Yeah. And that has led to a wave of violent attacks in Germany. Uh, housing units that have been used to house Muslim refugees have been burned to the ground, right? Um, there's been, obviously, extreme acts of violence against Muslim immigrants in Germany and France, you know? Always eyebrow-raising when these things happen in Germany, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But France has its own bloody history. I mean, you can... Uh, there was a repression of an Algerian uh, protest movement in the 1960s where the French police were literally just like filling the Seine with fucking dead bodies of Algerians that they killed in the streets of Paris. So, I mean, like, it's, you know, they have a long history of a very serious repression of these groups, right? But yeah, it's it's interesting how once we reach the period of neoliberalism, where, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative all of a sudden, all these theories really came flooding back in vogue to offer some explanation beyond it's just capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. making your life like this. And uh, I think that's my theory of why in, say, the 1920s and stuff, there was more pushback against, say, Henry Ford's anti-Semitism than you have now is that there was an active communist party that was basically saying like, there is an alternative, like there's an alternative explanation, an alternative way to live. Right. And that's, that's all sort of gone, which leads, uh, which makes people susceptible to this stuff. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it sucks. I don't know what to say. (laughs) Yeah. It sucks. I mean, you know, when you have, it's a potent combo to have mass media with Fox news, which is, you know, relatively new and mm. have no organized alternative in a meaningful way that, um, you know, is in the, is in the, is on the ground and in the zeitgeist. It's like, you know, communism has been effectively wiped out from the U S or any alternative really to, to this. So, you know, yeah, it's a potent combo. Yeah. And I think some people will probably maybe hear this and point out like, Oh, but there's like a lot less culture war bullshit about the war in Christmas this year. So, Obviously, this stuff is fading, and I think my argument would be, yeah, because they've moved on to even more insane theories than that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, the amount of people who believe that the forest fires of last summer were started by Antifa in this country is a lot higher than you would guess. Like, the amount of people I personally had pitch me that theory Uh is quite high. So, you know... um, and you know what? If Fox News wanted to, like, they would yeah. bring it back. It's not like they're pushing it in the same volume that they were before. Yeah, yeah they're literally you know? just not doing the, the volume. They're just not running the stories. Yeah. yeah, because I think they've moved on to just crazier shit. You know? Yeah, right. Uh, which is probably not a good sign. Um, but yeah. So that was the lovely history of the war in Christmas. That got you feeling better about the world and where we're going. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in um, you know, Christmas spirit right now. I got the holiday cheer after after that one. I'm ready to get my shining <laughs> armor and defend defend our culture, and defend uh, our freedom. Yeah, I'm just uh, strapping a, a flamethrower and suicide vest to my body and running at the front lines to win the war on Christmas. Thinking about like the uh, a type of guy who's like a Elon Musk stand, but also a defend Christmas return with a V guy. 
um, <laughs> who who like will get the boring company flamethrower that Elon Musk was selling, um, but also like uh, do that for the express purpose of like defending Christmas against the um, schneebling Jew. Yeah. Well, the thing is, too, is that like I suspect there probably is. Because this idea, you know, you'd mentioned earlier this idea of like, you know, culture on some level or cultural signifiers all people have. But the thing is, we really don't have that either. It's just harder to see that you don't have it, right? Like, yeah. when your landlord yeah. dispossesses you and throws you out of the house, right? It's very obvious you don't have housing, right? But culture is one of those things that we really don't have any control over. Um, it, it, it does change, but it changes behind our backs and in ways that we don't always necessarily see. And Christmas is one of those sort of funny things that is like indicative of this and that there probably are people who for God knows whatever reason have some weird religious attachment to Christmas and wish it was more insane and involved <laughs> much more chanting or whatever yeah, people yeah. do, you know, <laughs> but the reason why that stuff doesn't exist has nothing to do with evil plotting from nefarious, uh, you know, foreigners or whatever, you know, what that has to do with is literally capitalism in that marketing and the need to sell, move product and things like that is what has turned Christmas into what it is, right? Yeah. yeah. Coca-Cola is more responsible for your Christmas woes than uh, Muslims or whatever group. Yeah. I mean, the commodification of culture and spectacle is like really mm-hmm. what a lot of people's grievances are getting at when they probably you know, uh, have this reactionary idea of like uh, returning to like mm-hmm. a simpler time when it wasn't this way. Right. Well, yeah. you know, like, you know, capitalism and like tradition within culture, uh, you know, in an, in itself kind of have this contradiction where there's a, there's a vapid need to commodify everything that is like, you know, outside of capitalism and bring it mm-hmm. in to basically commodify it and sell it back to you. Right. And so instead of like having these, you know, traditions, whatever it is, I don't know what the hell type of tradition, like, you know, Christmas would be without presents or whatever. And I don't think that they're even calling for that, but it's like, you know, just the very idea of like, Oh, we got to go to like, you know, a um, you know, the parade in like Times Square. And then we have to like, you know, like get a bow on the car for our, <laughs> our thing. Like that's that's what Christmas me- basically means, like just buying things at yeah. this point, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I you mean, know, that's that that is that is commodification of, of culture. Yeah, I mean, it has been totally formed and shaped by capitalism, which is not something unique to Christmas. This is literally all, this is every element of culture. This is every element of your life. And I mean, I think that's part of what led to some of the frustration with and some of the clowning on the, uh, the like, defend Marvel at all costs crowd, like on social media. Yeah, when Marvel sold out to Disney. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, to see both like the pro and anti ones, the ones that are like strapping on the suicide vest for the mouse versus the ones strapping on the suicide vest against the mouse. (laughs) And the funny part is, it's like neither of you have any control over this at all. This is all happening totally outside of your control. Like the mouse doesn't give a fuck what you think. One way or the other, like. (laughs) <laughs> like disney owns everything you have to swallow the shit they fucking shovel at some point yep. and if you if you choose to pretend you like it or if you choose to pretend like it's the death of civilization it doesn't matter one way or the other yeah right like it, you know, don't care yeah you have no influence on the culture right you know particularly it's just individuals you know online and I, I think that probably is what some of people who get worked up about this kind of shit are responding to is they're starting to see the complete lack of control they have in politics, which has caused them to drop out of politics, the complete lack of control they have in their economic life, which has caused them to drop out of caring about that in any real way mm-hmm. uh, is now extending to the one thing that they supposedly had control over, which was culture. Uh, they're starting to realize, Oh no, I have no control there it's probably why too the supply line thing the supply chain shit like hits people in such a weird way like the amount of people i've had give like these hilarious like long rants about the supply chain like it fucking matters that you're not going to get your 
snuggy on time or whatever yeah. like who cares you get it a month it doesn't matter yeah. like people used to wait way longer for things yeah yeah but part of that is you'd again, be you'd be shocked on uh how long people waited for gas in the 70s buddy yeah like people you know like and just like waiting on shit to get delivered it's like dude like yeah half like the people things, waiting to their cars like yeah you, know, half the things you, you own are like being delivered to your door like that's yeah. a, that's you know that's unheard you of you can carry on with your life until it's delivered but I think what's happening is that this consumer identity, which, again, is one of these sort of like places that we go now that we realize we have no political or economic power. But this consumer identity now is also being maybe prodded a little bit and saying like, oh, it turns out you actually don't really have any control, any control over that either. Like, yeah, yeah. sign up for all the Amazon Prime you want. That Snuggie's still coming late. You know, yeah. nothing you could do. Like the one that. thing that they basically capital promise that you could have control over is basically yep. getting your treats. And now the treats are gone. Yeah. And like you know they, they're yeah. just not hitting they're still there but they're just like not not yeah. you know hitting because like yeah the idea is basically sacrifice like everything else in the class arena um you know you have no real hope of really having autonomy over your work uh, democracy over your work um you know yeah. any real um agency in your life except for when you are a consumer yeah that is the one time you can actually feel like you have agency in your life yeah, and it's probably part, not all of, but part of the hysterics over package thieves or whatever. It, yeah. You know, this like phenomenon that's like wildly overblown and all this bullshit is that, yeah, this idea that it is, it's attacking the uh, one last thing that you think you have agency in, which, you know, you're just discovering that like everything else is a fucking illusion. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, all right. We'll end it there. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed your sweet Christmas treat here. Uh, we'll be back next week with part two of our two-parter, the nadir of race relations in America. Mm -hmm. uh, go to your local library, find the dictionary section. Yes. Go pull out the latest edition of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Look up the term nadir, and that'll let you know what direction we're going with this story, whether it's going to be good or bad, whether we're going to have good, good vibes or bad vibes on this yeah. story. So. We're taking uh, we're taking bets, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm setting the odds. So, you know, bring yeah. them over, see if there's good vibes or bad vibes. Well, you'll, you'll find out soon enough. Yeah. Historians like to call it the nadir of American race relations. We don't know what it means either. So we're just going to have to follow the story to the end and try and yep. figure it out. We're, we're going to figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out with us. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll see everybody later. Bye. See ya. Bye. Merry Christmas. I don't want to fight tonight with... Oh